Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to another episode of Monday Morning Coffee. I am your host, Lindsay Pritchard-Fox, and with me today is Ben Gluntz. Uh, who is the CEO of Angularis Technologies, the creators of Swatchbox and Fimsmith. Welcome, Ben. Thank you for being on today. Thanks for having me, Lindsay. Um, all right. So we're old friends. Just so yeah. everyone knows we met 2018. Um, and it was Autodesk University. And it was an incredible show. It was the first time I had been out there. Um, and you are, your background is in architecture. And now you find yourself as CEO of this incredible company building these incredible platforms. Can you just let us know like how you got there? Like, how do you go from architect to, I see this problem and I gotta fix it? Yeah, sure. So like you said, I was in, in the practice of architecture, um, kind of grinding it out, honestly, you know, just at a number of firms frustrated with, you know, the lack of upward mobility for young architects. Um, you know, one of the things that people don't really talk about in the practice is how many young professionals are just kind of in the waiting and, and doing bathroom and stair details all day long, uh, really under leveraging their talent. And so that was super frustrating to me. And uh, at the same time, I started to notice that there were a lot of inefficiencies in the way that architects interacted with building product manufacturers. And so, you know, I, I said, you know what, heck with it. Let's, uh, let's start to solve this problem ourselves. So myself and a colleague at the firm I was at uh, sort of left and, and started the company, um, you know, to go after that problem of how do we more efficiently and effectively work with our counterparts in the building product manufacturers. Um, and so that was really the beginning. What, so... Um, Swatchbox, just so that we can break it down for everyone. What is what is Swatchbox and what, what problem were you trying to solve with it? Yeah, so Swatchbox came a little bit later. You know, we got our start working with building information modeling and the launch of BIMSmith. And, you know, many of you are already familiar with that as a tool set for finding manufacturer content for BIM workflow. Uh, and as we began to develop that, we started to ask the questions of what are the other pain points in terms of that interaction? And so uh, samples were a glaring black eye in the industry. And you know, we did a study that showed uh, less than half of the samples that were ordered in our study actually arrived you know, after being ordered. And so we found all these kind of just like crazy, how is it possible that? And you know, the thing that I think kept that area from being overturned is, is that it's intensely physical because you have actual objects of physical materials, but then you also have this digital aspect. And so what we did is kind of put our, our thinking caps on and our architect problem solver brains got to working to say, how could we actually make it as easy to download or, or order a sample as it is to download a PDF? And so that, that became kind of our, our battle cry, you know, let's make ordering a sample as easy as downloading a PDF. Um, and so that's what we set out to do by creating the world's first sample, building material sample ordering API. And so, you know, now that system exists on multiple manufacturer sites, uh, on our own site, Swatchbox Pro, um, and, and, and that's exactly what we've done. 
That's great. I mean, was it a big leap for you to like go out and build this company? And like, what was that? What was that transition like? Yeah, you know, when I first started, uh, my business partner and I, uh, you know, kind of kept our our jobs on the side as well. So we kind of had two jobs for a little while in the that early year or two, you know, and um, as we got more and more successful, we were able to uh, leave practice officially and put 100% of our effort behind this. And so that was a really big moment for us because it enabled us to really focus on what we were working on instead of having to, you know, be working 80, 90 hour weeks plus weekends. So, um, you know, it, it wasn't easy, but it, it certainly has been rewarding uh, in that we have been able to build something that's actually impacting positive change for the industry that we, you know, love. So. I mean, you do love it. I mean, oh, I, like, we, oh, no, we no. spend enough time on the conference floors, like just kind of geeking out to like right. just how cool it is to be able to do what we do. And it, it's interesting because we've talked about, we've talked to lots of entrepreneurs, you know, and hearing the different entry points, you know, is it the soft, slower transition? Is it like jump off a cliff? Is it, um, oh wait, I just got pushed off the cliff. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I think it's interesting because it must have been an interest. It must have been a challenge to have one foot in each world, yeah, and have like you, a problem that you are solving and having success solving, and then having that foot in the analog thing that you're saying, "I need to fix this. Get me out of here." Yeah, yeah. You know, we we always talk about it, kind of like jumping out of a helicopter and making yourself a parachute as you're, as you're <laughs> dropping. You know? another guest say. Yeah. So that, that's really what it, it feels like. I, I think that's probably the most accurate analogy that I've ever heard. Yeah. And so your Swatchbox was actually second to the Angularis technology. Yeah. Like, um, so you're in the architectural practice and you had your toolbox that you were, uh, were you obligated to use AutoCAD? Was getting into 3D modeling something that you were, that you elected to do? How did you get into the 3D space? Yeah, I started using Revit in 2007. So I, I was very fortunate to have a series of colleagues and mentors that encouraged me uh, to learn that very early on in my career. And so that really led to a great trajectory and practice uh, to be an expert within a few years. Uh, I mean, I guess an expert in 2009 in Revit is very different than an expert today. Um, but very few people were able to translate Revit to an actual project. It was conceptual. You were able to kind of knock out a model, but very few people understood how to turn that into actual construction documentation. Um, and so that was early success in my career. And then we took what we learned with that uh, and translated that to the BIM content for manufacturers. But simultaneous to that, in practice, you know, if you're the low man on the totem pole, you're also responsible for ordering the samples. And, you know, on a given project, there could be, you know, several dozen products that you're going to put on that board, whether you're going in for some sort of municipal review or whatever, uh, that's going to happen on a deadline. And, uh, a lot of people think architects are these notorious procrastinators, but the reality is we're actually at the bottom of the funnel in a whole series of procrastinators. Whether it's the, 
the banker, the developer, That's the just owner. One. There's more. And it, it just kind of gets passed down, passed down, passed down. And the architect is the one who has to deliver on the final deadline. And so what that does is it creates this pinch point with, a, with deliverables, whether that's the construction documents or the samples for a meeting. And, uh, you know, there was a particular time where I was kind of specking out cladding for a building and there were two brands in the running that I was considering. And uh, I contacted both on the same day, knowing I needed a fail safe that I'd only get one probably. And one never got back to me. One got it to me within five days, which you know, at the time felt pretty speedy, but you know, that's all kind of pre our expectations of Amazon and two day delivery and all of this. Right. And so now looking back, um, I probably wouldn't have had to order a fail safe if I knew that I could reliably order samples in a, a timely fashion and do it in a, a digitally native sort of environment um, integrated where I'm already working. And so that's really the concept that um, I looked back to years later, you know, we started, uh, we, we brought um, Swatchbox into beta in 2017 and 2018 private beta kind of under the veil of uh, secrecy with a couple brands. Uh, and then we launched it publicly in 2019. And so, uh, you know, as we did that and learned more and more about how bad it actually was, it, it really is a big problem uh, in terms of communicating with physical materials and kind of, it, it, some people say it's ironic that the digital guy is the one talking about holding something and feeling it, but it's, it's equally important that you experience a material uh, with your senses and be able to feel it. And, you know, I, an architect friend of mine likes to say, and I want to smell it, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, you want to see it, you want to smell it. I don't know that you're going to take I need to see color. Yeah. I need to see how it's interacting with light. Exactly. And so, you know, that's something that as of right now, the digital realm just can't replicate. So how can we surround the entire process of that uh, with a digital workflow that can be automated, cataloged, and uh, brought into the 21st century? You had a great, you had a great story. When, so early in my design development, like in my professional development, uh, I experienced the placeholder. You know, when you're putting a design together and you, you know you have to have a sink, you know you have to have a sink there, but you, you know, got to go back and pick the sink. And I think that there's a disconnect sometimes in saying like, this is where the sink is located, but this isn't the sink that I want to buy or that I want my clients to install. Right. Um, do you know this story? Do you remember this story? Uh, about, yeah. The that, Revit, the Revit yeah. Brown sink. Yeah. The vanity sink out of the out of the box from Revit, yeah. Um, and they, right, they actually found it. Again, it. I'm gonna tell it again. It it does exist. The the vanity sink from Revit. We know that now. So you're working on a project. You put the placeholder sink in, right? Well, it started with me modeling this beautiful square vessel sink that was you know from a high end uh, manufacturer, and I made the model. Uh, I took the time to make the Revit family put it in. My boss sees it and says, well, "Why are you wasting so much time on that?" Just put the out-of-the-box sink in there. We're not paid to get get fancy schmancy. Uh, and uh, I said, okay. And I took it out. I put in the, I think it's called the vanity sink in, in Revit. It's still in there today. It's just kind of this horrible round cylindrical sink. Yep. And uh, dropped it in. And believe it or not, the engineer found that sink. And no one caught it. 
in the specs and they put it in and they cut the hole through the countertop to do it when the spec called out a very specific vessel sink that sat on top of the countertop. So they had to rip it all out and, and, and redo the whole thing. But now that was an early indication you know, on the BIM side of things that representation matters. Representation uh, matters. Well, yeah. and the, the, the design vision matters. Yeah, exactly. Like how, so, I mean, was that like the direct line into the creation of BIM Smith? Oh, 100%, yeah. You're like, I'm actually going to put a platform together where I get rewarded or a manufacturer gets rewarded for creating a digital replica of their product. Yeah, and by making my life easier as a draftsman or an architect, you know, yeah, you should be rewarded. Well, and I, I mean, that's why it's fantastic is that um, I, as a designer later, you know, when you're actually getting your CDs together and you're actually getting your design package together, presenting things to clients, I, I don't want placeholders. Right. I want to know, and you don't get to have placeholders. So, you know, we, we run field construction and if we don't have the proper valve for the proper sink that's selected at framing, then the entire workflow is completely disrupted. Yeah, that's And so a digital replica of the actual, you know, fixture matters. Yeah, no doubt. And so this, the, the Swatch Box and the Ben Smith definitely seem to be something that like, one, they work together very well. Because when you're putting your, your designs together, it's cohesive. Exactly, and when you're ready to make the leap off the screen, it's just a few clicks away. And, you know, that's, that's really the power of it, you know, to be able to move back and forth between the physical and the digital and not have to pull your hair out by, you know, calling a rep four times and hope they're going to call you back and maybe, you know, ship uh, a little chip of something. You know, we, uh, we have a, our corporate headquarters here. We were working on a, a renovation of a portion of it, and we ordered a sample from the manufacturer that was going to be in it not through our program, but they literally sent us a one inch by one inch square uh, in this horrible envelope. And we're just like, what are you thinking? Like, how, how do you expect me to make a, a decision based off of that? Um, and unfortunately, there's still people out there who think that that's, that's gonna fly. Well, and I will say that I love the rendering engines. And, you know, um, and there's a key point to the single source BIM workflow is that the, the materials that you have in your model can get pushed to high yeah. quality rendering right. environments now. Um, however, I can use those rendering environments for to, to narrow selections. Yeah. But I totally agree with you to have the like a physical interaction with the material that you're selecting. You just need to do it in order to feel like a, a that tangible, in fact, like I want to, I want to pay for this. Yeah, and that's such a great point. So often we run into this in the value engineering phases. Uh, you've made a great selection for a tile or a brick or you know even a paint, and you have to rationalize to your owner or developer or whoever that is why you've made that choice for this a little bit more expensive product that you know is better and is going to yield better results what could be better to show them the difference than by putting two samples side by side um, to, to be able to feel that difference and understand that difference and really win the argument why uh, the selection that you made is, is actually the better choice. 
I, it, yeah, I think those are the moments where you really prove yourself to be um, an empathetic uh, designer. And I think that's something that like this BIM environment has been able to do is just kind of open the platform. I've recently like made the argument that um, when I'm building a model and I'm in conceptual design, I will do immersive VR experiences with my clients. And in those immersive experiences, you get to see the subfloor, you get yeah. to see like raw drywall rendered. Um, and the clients get to have an interaction with that space. Yeah. And very often I will, I'll create an experience that they, that they wanted me to create for them. Like the layout that they thought would work. And, right. I'll, and then I'm like, I'll do a save as and create this, you know, just like rework yeah. it based on the design that, that mm -hmm. I had in mind. And with some level of humility, I demonstrate both of them in a VR experience. And it's definitely um, a confidence booster when my clients see the one that I had created and said, oh, you actually put more thoughts. You thought of more <laughs> things that impact how I use this space than I had thought of. Right. They're like, well, right, because you're, you're designing for your pain points right now. Right. But my job as a designer is to anticipate, you know, yeah. what your pain points will be as your family grows. Um, yeah, I think that's so undersold by today's architects, designers, contractors, is that that's really the value in working with a design professional is the things that you don't know. We're paid to know things that you don't know. And we've paid that because we've done it. We've been there, done that. We've seen it. And that, that all comes back to material selection as well. You know, I've seen that product go up. I've seen it five years down the road and it starts to not look great. You bet you would never know that if you hadn't lived it. And, and that's, you know, what's so important about the job that we all do in this industry. Yeah. And it doesn't always feel tangible. So I do, I, the fact that you like recognize that as such a like young, you know, professional and saw those pain points and moved into a world where, you know, you could actually affect the change and demonstrate the value of your profession. I can only imagine that you've gotten really positive feedback from like design professionals that you work with. Oh yeah, no doubt. And it's great to see, you know, the top firms, you know, in using our tools, you know, it's extremely validating and, and satisfying to see those, you know, having an impact on our built environment because the reality is material and product selection can change a design from being amazing for its inhabitants and its owner to being a total liability. I mean, look at the failures that we've seen in different projects, uh, you know, both here and abroad, a lot of it comes down to the failure of specification decisions around product selection. You know, you can design a gorgeous building and if the way it's detailed, specified, and selected aren't correct and aren't the best possible ways, you can really create a liability for your owner or uh, developer that you're working with. And so I think- Yeah, and the, and the residents of like, you know, the towers that are- Right, building. right. You don't want to have to make those decisions on the fly. I think where it's underestimated is, is how the materials interact with each other and whether or not that they actually can interact and still hold the integrity of, of the material. Yeah. Um, so the more you can drive, I think, it, I mean, it's fun to see everything, but I think the ability to see something um, ultimately funnels into 
the longevity of a structure. You know, like we, we don't want to just tear this stuff off right. um, because it didn't have the longevity that we needed because it was exactly. a last, last minute decision. Um, so there's, there's so many layers that go into there. How is the, so I would say the manufacturers probably love what you're doing, right? Cause you're get, you're giving like a direct line into getting their, their product into build outs. Is that, that's your market? How's that going? Yeah. You know, it's, it's fantastic. And we, we view ourselves as helping to provide that handshake. You know, we're not forcing it down either, either side. We're not saying, oh, you know, we've got architects, Mr. Manufacturer, do you want them? Like, no, they have relationships with architects. We're saying, here's a better way to interact and we'll provide a platform to do that. And we're going to make it easier for both of you. It's a win-win on both sides. Uh, and if that results in better decisions being made in more efficient ways, I think that's the win for both sides. Because uh, the more we can free up the people who are doing the work to do actual work, like actually make intelligent design decisions, design better buildings, do more research into the context of the place they're building, you know, the, all these things result in a better environment for everyone. But we can't do that as professionals if we're bogged down trying to, you know, knock out this quick render or, you know, oh, hey, do this quick drawing and, you know, not being efficient with our time just due to inefficient tools. So, so that's the thing that I'm always harping on is how can we just continuously improve the everyday mundane of the design process so we can spend that time on meaningful decisions. Yeah. And the, I mean, we talking about earlier, the, you can't always change the, the who and the what that you're involved in, but you can change the how. Did we talk about that? Yeah. You know, I, I say that all the time, you know, we kind of, as architects get handed, okay, here's the who, the client can't change that. Here's the what you're going to make me a hospital. Okay. <laughs> that's the what, uh, you know, the why, well, cause we need a hospital. Okay. And uh, when, oh, well, we need it next week. We actually needed it a month ago. So all of those things are handed us to directly in, in most design scenarios. Uh, and there's not a whole lot we can do about it, but we can do a lot about the how of what we do to deliver that project and the how of how we treat each other in practice and the way we show each other respect and, and the way that we work together, the efficiency that we drive that each project is more enjoyable and more fulfilling than the, the previous one. Because at the end of the day, you know, if you're not being fulfilled by the work you're doing, that's going to come through in the work that you produce and people will see that. I mean, I can imagine that the, the realities of workflows now is even more contingent on how we do things because we can't expect them to arrive on time, on right. schedule, or I'm going to order this today and expect it on site tomorrow. Yeah. And the, like the level, like when, so when the, you get your swatch box and you get your samples and you've worked through all of these decisions early, like, are we, are you seeing that people are, are able to get their samples and get those decisions out into the field successfully? Oh yeah, no doubt. I mean, if you know, our, our service level is, is a two day guarantee uh, in some markets it's next day. Um, so when you know that you can count on that, 
you know, that enables you to, you know, if you need to procrastinate on a decision and, and wait a little longer, you know you can get that guaranteed. Uh, so then you're not just phoning it in just because you have a deadline. Um, you know, so, and again, that's not because you're procrastinating. It's because you're at the bottom of a pile of procrastinators. Um, so, you know, the reality is that that service level can really help uh, to, you know, just make it easier overall. Um, yeah, I was like, well, I feel like the nature of design is, is like, it's primed for procrastination because, um, your creative, the creative mind doesn't always like fit the schedule. Right. Yeah. So I think it's a way of respecting, um, your creative process. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. I could go, I could go weeks not knowing to do with what to do with the layout. I've got a client that gives me a crazy puzzle. Right. I mean, I was working on a project where I never actually met the client. It was uh, the mother-in-law and that, you know, her daughter and her daughter's husband were building this addition. And so they were telling us all the things that their mother, the mother-in-law wanted, but I never actually got to have a meeting with her. <laughs> um, because in reality, the, the addition was being designed to be a bedroom, you know, to whomever was using it. Um but it was just such a struggle. And one, you know, just like one day, probably like three days before, you know, a presentation, it all just unlocked. And I went into this dark, dark hole of uh, creativity. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, knowing that I could, I like, yeah, you don't even know the materials that are going to be selected until you've worked out some of those challenges and the layouts. So yeah. exactly. definitely is the nature of the industry. Um, did you, so when you were, um, I mean, this, the funny story of the sink, I mean, I, I, when you go to like manufacturers and you're trying to like, are they aware of BIM? Is it something that you have to like baseline educate when you're? Yeah. You know, it varies by industry. There are some industries that are more advanced than others with that. Uh, 10 years ago, no, nobody, nobody knew what it was. Um, so it's certainly been a gradient of improvement um, as it's become more mainstream to the point where sometimes we get calls from manufacturers who are hunting us down saying, I've got to have this. So, uh, you know, it, it does vary, but we, we do still get people out there who have never, never heard anything. And, and the thing you have to remember is building product manufacturers and their marketing departments and whatnot, they're always cycling people out. So you could have somebody who's like a BIM level ninja um, person that you're working with and then they move on and we hire somebody that worked at Nabisco who was selling cookies. And you're starting over at square one. It's not like everybody that's in the building materials industry will always stay and has always been. So there's always that continuous growth and education, you know, that we work into our process. Well, and there could be like serious silos between like the product and the marketing. Right. And I would, I mean, I would really like for manufacturers to, to start just broadcasting out there that, that, that building information modeling is, is a resource that they're paying to have and they want utilized. So I think having Bimsmith on um on the radar is so important but honestly like can you just host it on your own website so that i can like know that you get it like that's good step one like i want to know if a manufacturer gets it yeah um 
Now you had said that you got into Revit in 2007 and I, I just feel so sad for you. <laughs> I can't imagine what Revit 2007 felt like. Um, and I was in Revit 2016. Now I'm in Revit 2022 and just like profoundly different. Yeah. Um, so the, back in the day, uh, you could go get random, uh, BIM items off yep. of random websites on the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, you could put those into your model and right. have your model completely crash. Yep. Is that something that you identified as like a painful oh, thing? <laughs> yeah, I had a colleague who downloaded a model from a just a random site on the internet and it ended up having like a virus in it. And, you know, oh gosh, the stories you hear. But um, yeah, you know, Revit wasn't even, back then Revit didn't even have like year releases. It was like 5.0, 6.0, 7.0, you know. So it, it was a, it was a different world, but the, the core was there and we all knew it was eons better than anything else that was available and that it was most certainly the future. So that bet paid off. Yeah. And when you're creating content for your, for your platforms, is that something that your, your content creators are thoughtful of when they're creating these models for the manufacturers? Uh, which part? How the, how the family components are built. Like, if I go to Bimsmith and I get a window, is it going to make my whole model crash? <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, so <laughs> a good, good slug of the team here at, at, at our uh, content creation area, they, they come from practice just like me. So, you know, we have a really rigorous um, set of standards that we adhere to and testing and, you know, everything that makes it up on that site, you know, you can, you can count on the fact that it's going to perform well. And you know what I like? I like that they're thoughtful about the size. Like yep. the level of detail that you can go into when you're in the family side of Revit. Yeah, um, you can go down a black hole for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But then like, what are the consequences? Yeah. Like, and that's where you have to have an educated professional that's building those components for you because um, one, it can create incredible lag in, in your model. Um, and I feel like there was a story we talked about, like a level of detail on like a, like spindle or something that just like was completely, like it completely wrecked yeah. <laughs> the performance. Well, when we did the Christmas competition, uh, this past year for Ben Smith users to create like something, you know, Christmassy as a Revit family. And there was one submission that came in at clocked in at 75 meg. Um, and we couldn't, we couldn't even get it to open. So, you know, beware, uh, you know, there's, there is such a thing as too much. There is, um, we did not, I don't think we, we definitely used your content. So we did the whole, um, ginger bim. We're making yep. it a thing right year after year. Yeah. Um, yep. I'm still waiting. Well, I have to find the model that I want to turn into my ginger bim for the, for the 21 Christmas season, but we definitely used your content. We were very glad to have it. I had my staff, um, for giggles, developing like gumdrops out of like luminous material so that I could. Yeah. You guys need to submit one next year. This year. Uh, well, I mean, how fantastic is it? So just take, something that is so serious. I mean, people yeah. look at it, Revit, Revit is something that's like, uh, you know, daunting and difficult. And I'm like, wait a minute. I just made gumdrops people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
but yeah, it's fantastic. And um, so going back to Swatchbox, moving away from gumdrops, if people are interested in getting, where do they go to like start the Swatchbox experience? Yeah, you just go to swatchbox.com and just click on the browse samples button and that'll take you into our uh, pro experience, which was launched uh, and revamped recently. So we're really excited about that and, you know, just try it out. Let us know what you think. Send in your feedback. You know, if there's a brand you want to see, let us know. That's how we are able to approach more manufacturers. It's totally free for design professionals and uh, it's guaranteed to arrive in under two days. So um, there's no reason not to try it. That's so incredible. Thank you. Um, and, you know, inside the firm is on YouTube. We're on YouTube, everybody. Say hi. Um, subscribe for a chance to win for uh, your firm merch. And please try and leave a five-star review. It does help us reach a broader audience. And if you're looking for more inside the firm content, uh, follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, inside the firm, Instagram, and ITF podcast. Um, and Ben, I'm sure people can find you on LinkedIn. We're up, like, yeah, I link in with everybody. <laughs> yep. LinkedIn is great. Benjamin Blunt's, uh, and then, uh, our website is angularist.com and you can learn more about Ben Smith and Swatchbox there as well. That's so incredible. Thank you for coming on. It was great catching up with you. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks, Lindsay.